Hi, I'm County Executive Barry Glassman. And whether you're on the go, in the car, or at your desk, the Conduit Street Podcast delivers your accurate local news. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, Mako's Policy Associate, along with my co-host Michael Sanderson, Mako's Executive Director. And Michael, how are you today? Doing all right, thanks. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the heat in Maryland. It is really, really hot this week. We'll talk a little bit about what counties are doing to help folks beat the heat. We'll also talk about the Janus decision. We touched on this a little bit in our last episode. The Supreme Court has ruled on Janus versus AFSCME. We'll talk about the potential impact on unions across the country and as well as here in Maryland. And we'll follow up on our elections coverage. We still have two races that are too close to call in Baltimore County and Montgomery County. We also have an interesting twist to report in the race for Montgomery County Executive. Michael, before we begin our podcast, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what happened last week here in Annapolis at the Capitol Gazette, a tragedy. Five folks were killed there, and this is really close to home. Here in Annapolis, this is a very tight-knit community. The Capitol Gazette reports on everything from your local high school football yeah, game yeah. to the General Assembly, and I know you and I and all the folks here at Mako have gotten to know these people over the years, and just just an unimaginable tragedy that this community experienced last week. Yeah, it it, it really is. It's um, you can still feel it. I mean, we're recording several days after things happened, and the fallout is still something you can feel around town. Uh, there've been memorial services and, and the like, so it's still in the paper itself, but sort of on the minds of of people in and around Annapolis. I I, I got to say, I, I mean, I, it it feels it feels really awkward. Um, feeling this event as much as we do living and working in and around Annapolis and knowing, you know, sadly, we're not the only community who's experienced this kind of tragedy and to, to go through it in a way that we know some, you know, there's a, there's a community in Florida and in Texas and in Connecticut and in Colorado and so forth who have sadly been through this kind of thing with its own dimensions and its own chapter and, and, and so forth. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, you can't help but feel for the friends and family. And I, I guess you know, the, the, the piece of this incident relating to the press and it being not just an attack on a private business but directed toward the public press seemingly – partially related to what they were doing as the press. It right. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just a matter of somebody cutting the lunch line. Right. Um, so that, I mean, as a, as, as a practical matter that has its own dimensions, but it's, it's been a hard several days around town. It has, there are still a lot of questions of course, but um, just an unimaginable tragedy. And, and Michael, I don't know if, if this is too soon and I don't think we want to say anything to try and make a point, but because we are here to talk about Maryland politics and policy, do you envision uh, this having any sort of shakeup on the gubernatorial election or influencing anything that the General Assembly does when it comes back in 2019? 
I, I, I guess it's possible from, I don't think there's a lot here from the county government perspective, but one thing that I, I think you, you have to take notice of is the, the suspect in this circumstance was someone who had been in and around the justice system, who had been up on charges, who did, who arrived at a plea deal. Right. Um, I think ended up with effectively an expungement of uh, of his uh, of his conviction. Um, ends up legally buying a gun and committing this crime. Uh, there are pieces in that chain that you'd have to think there are going to be some actors in the policy realm who are going to connect, connect the dots and say, we need to change public policy regarding um, expungements or regarding the ability for prosecutors to make plea arrangements or from other elements of the, the various kind of justice reforms that Maryland has been making and a number of other states have, have been making as well. You know, the, the theory in a lot of cases has been let's get nonviolent people right. out of jail and out of just incarceration um, you know, those conversations, we use the term nonviolent. Uh, I, I don't know where this person fits on that continuum. Uh, it's not our strong suit, but you don't, you don't have to be a psychic to sort of see this being the sort of thing where it might provide a, a political foothold. Right. So, I mean, it could literally could be a 180 because during the last session, there was a lot of talk about expungements. And as you mentioned, you know, nonviolent offenders having their record expunged and then, we have an incident like this where an expungement led to this individual being able to legal, right, yeah. legally purchase a weapon, right, right. Uh, potentially. So I do think there are some questions in that you mentioned people will connect the dots and there'll be a lot of discussion about this moving forward. Yeah, so heavy heart about the whole situation. There may be a policy connection, but right now it's, it's uh, still time for Annapolis Strong, I think. Annapolis Strong for sure. Throughout this week, it's been extremely hot. It's ungodly hot outside. <laughs> I was uh, downtown today. The Stanley Cup was in town. There were a bunch of people standing in line waiting to see it. Everyone's sweating. I think it's important to mention that this is another function of county government where we are reaching out to our vulnerable populations, right, to our aging community, to our children, and we're going through neighborhoods and we're setting up cooling centers and we're making sure that they're taken care of and that they have the resources they need to beat the heat. I mean, it's, this is this is what local government is about, and it's not the first thing you think of other than in the moment. I mean, today, if you look at social media feeds for county governments and and that sort of thing, which you know both you and I do, right. that it's loaded with here are where we have cooling centers set up. Here are some recreation facilities where we've canceled the events, and now it's just going to be a place where the public can come and make sure you get some shade and so forth. But uh, I mean, this is. This is the heart and soul of local government, uh, that person going down the street and knocking on the door where we know there might be an elderly citizen who might not have air conditioning. Right. Just check in on her. This is this is, you know, this is exactly what local government is. And I, I don't know. I think there's some value in, in putting that face on things as, as we talk about advocating for counties and what's going to mean for county services and county budgets and county leaders and so forth. We we use that word county 
as a euphemism for a giant bundle of things that citizens really depend on. And in some cases, it's just a place to cool off. Yeah, and in in the wintertime, when we have code blue alerts, we're also opening up warming centers, right? So this same vulnerable population, folks are reaching out to them to make sure that they're okay. But it's just another instance of where county governments are so well connected to the communities that they serve. You really have that impact on your community, and you know where people are that might be in a vulnerable position. I just think it's really great to see all these news feeds on Twitter Um, Just the 23 counties in Baltimore City constantly reminding folks to stay cool and giving them resources to make sure that they have the ability to do that. So that's one of those things that's a backbone of the work that we do on behalf of counties as we we, talk through these podcasts, but we're also delivering testimony and trying to advocate on behalf of the strength of county governments. I mean, this is this is the fabric of, of what we're talking about at that level. So it's a it's a good reminder and and hopefully we'll find that you know Maryland gets through this kind of a heat wave you know without you know terrible you know without loss of life and without really bad outcomes in part because we were prepared we have these this kind of infrastructure you know, in place Michael let's transition now to the Janus decision we touched on this a bit last week yeah, we knew this was coming so this is a uh, Supreme Court case that uh, was Janus versus AFSME. this all has to do with fair share fees. So in a setback for the unions, uh, the Supreme Court overturned a 41-year-old precedent by a 5-4 to four vote, ruling that the First Amendment protects teachers, police officers, and other public employees from being required to support a private group whose views may differ from theirs. So this decision strikes down laws in Maryland, California, New York, and 19 other mostly blue-leaning states that authorize unions to negotiate contracts that require all employees so-called fair share fee to cover the cost of collective bargaining. And and the the policy argument here and the and at the same time the legal argument is is sort of nuanced. Uh, we 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 talked about this a little bit in a in a previous episode, but now that we've seen the ruling, we've seen the court go the way we and I think all all observers were expecting it was going to go. Right. So this isn't a surprise that this is the holding, but this this idea of what what's the relationship between a public sector union who represents all the um, law enforcement officers or all the firefighters or all the teachers or all the, the general government workers and so forth. These are, this is the groups we're, we're talking about. Right. So what's the relationship between that union who was, uh, you know, they, they've been certified by a majority of the employees to negotiate on their behalf and so forth. So without a doubt, there's there are functions of that union that benefit that, that they inure to the benefit of every employee member or not. They, and so those people yeah. who aren't members, they're called in some circles free riders, right? They're getting all the benefits of the union, but they're not actually paying those those fair share fees right. to receive those benefits. And so they're not putting into the big pot that represents everyone collectively. So for a long time, this was a state by state decision. Since the seventies, this has been a matter that the states could decide do you empower these unions to charge the the you know the non-union members a partial fee, not dollar for dollar right. what a union member pays, but some fee that represents in some way the you know the the benefits the person receives just by being in the employee class that the union represents. Right. And, and almost everybody you know has has some recognition that that makes sense. Um there is also a policy issue where 
the 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 practice of public sector unions is different than in the private sector where they inherently end up negotiating on matters that become matters of public policy right and things like working condition and so forth for public employees inherently turn into a matter of public import so uh, this it, it's it's more complicated than than as as simple as the I, I grew up in the Midwest, and and there were lots of union workers at the you know the auto um, the auto plants in the area where I grew up. And uh, if the the union representing the GM workers is negotiating for salaries for those employees, that's that's different than teachers in, right. in a lot of ways. So the court steps in and says states like Maryland that have protected these these uh, these fees that's set aside. Um, I mean, you have to think. I think every every viewer believes that this will deplete the resources overall that are available to public sector unions. Now, they will all say, and I think rightly so, that they've separated out their revenues. They have some things that are for things like salary negotiations and you know the contract negotiations and, and that sort of thing, which which affect the whole class. And then another pocket of money that doesn't come from you know from from these uh, add-on fees um that's used for political activities and the like so they've separated those two into two separate pockets but if the whole of funding for public unions comes down you have to think that that just depresses the ability to to print pamphlets and to hire enough staff to do the various things that make them politically effective and they are politically effective groups. Yeah, that's a great point. And the Supreme Court in 1977 actually ruled that employees may not be forced to pay union dues if some of that money went to political contributions, right? But they did uphold uh, the lesser fair share fees on the theory that all employees benefit from a union contact, contract and its grievance procedures. Now, I am interested to know your thoughts on what this may do in Maryland. I think in the Maryland gubernatorial primary that we just went through, Union endorsements and potentially union money had a major impact, and that could have an impact moving forward. Does the Janus decision at all impact the influence of the unions in Maryland politics? Yeah, I, I think it's it's anybody's guess what the what the bottom line is going to be, but um, it, it almost has to have an effect. Right, it, it it virtually has to have some effect just because the the num the sheer number of dollars that are in the till at the end of the day for a public sector union will be upended and reduced. So you have to think it matters. But we we've seen for for years the effect of public sector unions, especially in difficult to articulate candidate candidacies. Right. Um, and that you know that apple ballot because of your your teachers union either the state or the local teachers union endorses you and you have a piece of paper that has a nice little red apple by you know three out of seven names or four out of thirty six names uh, you know that sort of thing yeah absolutely um, you know you have to think that those things matter uh, there are a sizable number of a number of people who I think articulate a message that fits with the views of public unions and end up becoming real players in the political scene as a result there's there's a chicken and egg question there but but as as a practical matter i think it's i think it's m- very material and and we we should see the effects quite a bit and yeah you know, i mean even in this year's democratic primary for governor 
the state teachers union came out fairly aggressively and a little bit early mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of Ben Jealous. Some people would say that that's part of what gave him credibility. He wasn't, he's never held elected office before. He's had, you know, other roles in policy, but has, has never held elected office. Some people might have said he's unqualified, but if the state teachers union finds his views to their liking and they think he's a fit for them, that could easily persuade a lot of people who might otherwise have said he doesn't have the experience I'm looking for. Yeah, that was a huge endorsement. And I think that sort of gave him a jolt at the time that they endorsed him. That was a big deal. And you do drive around and see a lot of these candidate signs that say teacher endorsed on them. Or when you go to the polls and you get that Apple ballot Mm -hmm. and you're looking at 16 names and you just look at your Apple ballot and you say, you know what? I am a strong supporter of the teachers or I have a family member who's a teacher. And if they endorse these candidates, I'm just going to go check those names on my ballot. I'm not even going to look at anything else. They also have a lot of people that show up to the polls and they, you know, they work the polls. These are people who reliably vote, right? The unions are notorious for being able to get their people out to the polls and vote for the candidates they're endorsing. So they do wield um, considerable influence in politics, not just here in Maryland, but across the country. I don't think you have to, you don't have to accuse a a union of playing fast and loose with what money is what to say that there's potentially an effect here. I mean, just the sheer number of people who can be employed by the union might drop if if union union dues in the aggregate drop 20% and that means there's something like 20% fewer people employed by the unions. Right. That probably translates to fewer people who are out there driving minivans on election day, hauling six people at a time to the polling place. Absolutely. You know, they're not using money that they're not supposed to be using for political contributions. But if you take money out of that collective pot, obviously all boats will sink just a little bit. Yeah. Well, we're one of those states where this is going to have a big effect. You have to think so. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into an election coverage follow-up. We'll talk about the races in Montgomery County and Baltimore County, both for Democratic County Executive nominee. Both are too close to call. And we also have a very interesting twist in the Montgomery County Democratic primary for County Executive. We'll talk about all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's talk a little bit about elections. If you haven't listened to it yet, we did a full primary election coverage on our last episode. For more extensive coverage of all the local races and state races, we have all of that on our blog as well. You can just search primary election and find all of that. But Michael, where we left this last time we recorded was that we had two races that were too close to call in Montgomery County and Baltimore County. We're talking about the Democratic primary for county executive in both of these instances. In Baltimore County, uh, Johnny Olszewski's lead is now just 42 votes over Senator Jim Broshan to get the party's nomination. Uh, County Councilwoman Vicki Allman is in third place, uh, 1,000 votes behind. In Baltimore County, they sent out 3,600 absentee ballots. Uh, 2,000 of those were received and counted. We're still waiting on provisional ballots, which will be counted uh, Thursday of this week as we sit here on Tuesday and record. But remarkable that out of hundreds of thousands of votes, they are separated by only 42, 42 votes. Right. So, and this is, I mean, we we talked in our in our first round of coverage about the quirkiness with the provisional ballots, and that there's an 
extra wave of provisional ballots because of technical problems, people who who went and thought they were entering in and updating their voter information. It turns out that didn't get processed correctly. Okay, it looks like that isn't the giant wave of provisional ballots that we were at one point panicked about. Right. But still, there may be half again as many as usual, and that number might be as many as 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 all the uh, the absentee ballots. So it's a bigger number than usual. And but seriously, it's as I recall, you know, the top candidates in Baltimore County have twenty seven thousand or so votes apiece. For this to be down to forty two votes separating first and second place. I mean that makes this pretty close to a toss up for what you know what happens on on it'll be like July 5th and 6th right. to get this sorted out presumably this is going to be well within the margin of what state law asks for an automatic recount anyway so we're we're like most states where you have a process for recounts if the vote is close or if a candidate requests and and, and is willing to pay for it so that's probably going to happen anyway and Maryland's not used to recounts, and we're we're only this is only our second election out of a cycle where before for for a stretch of time, basically since two thousand and two, I think mm-hmm. we've been using on screen voting systems. So the notion of a recount when you use an on screen system is you just ask the computer press a button, you know, say run the numbers again, and you know one one millionth of a second later it pr- produces the exact same number exactly because it's just tallying sort of electronic numbers right. here you physically are talking about running through stacks of ballots yeah, we got so a stack of paper ballots so we have our paper ballots we fill them out and then we feed them into the scanning machine <laughs> and so michael are we talking here that we may have a situation where somebody you know circled in a candidate and then they put an x through it and they have a giant arrow to the other candidate and we're going to have people physically counting paper ballots and trying to interpret what that voter meant. When, I, I when guess they, you can you can end up there. I don't think we're going to exactly be hanging chads and you know, these, these nightmares from Florida from from the year two thousand. But but I do think. I mean, one thing that that is almost certain to happen is you'll be in a given precinct and you'll run the stack of ballots and it came up 651 the first time and this time it comes up 652. Right. And so that is bound to happen just as a function of pieces of paper. They are imperfect items and then two get grabbed by the scanner or something along those lines. That stuff just happens. Mm -hmm. So, okay, um, some combination of machine and computer error, that's going to lead to some little bit of vagary. But, I mean, the other thing is you almost certainly are going to have a situation like that, right? And we've, I I mean, I've seen these things on on social media from other states that have gone through recounts. Absolutely. And you end up with, you know, people put lizard people as their answer and how do you interpret that? But they filled in, you know, they filled in the bar for a certain candidate and other stuff like that. So, I mean, some of this is humorous, but then, you know, you end up with election judges have to make a decision over, okay, do we count this ballot? Is it sufficiently clear that the person meant to vote for candidate A and not nobody or not B? Right. And um, this isn't as simple as just, you know, run, run, run them through, throw them through again and we'll see what the answer is in a half an hour. Yeah, we don't just have to press enter on the computer and have it spit out numbers. You might have to physically recount these ballots and make those difficult determinations, the election judges will, of what people meant to do if they didn't fill out their ballot correctly. So brace yourself, Maryland, and brace yourself, candidates. It's conceivable that even once we're done counting the absentees and counting the provisionals, and we have a total and it's official, we may not be done yet. 
So as I said, in Baltimore County, they sent out 3,600 absentee ballots. 2,000 were counted. They do have a second canvas for absentee ballots, which will take place on July 6th. So there possibly could be 1,600 ballots still out that had not been received at the time of the first canvas, plus all of the provisionals. And again, just 42 votes separate Johnny O from Jim Brochin. Quite a finish, and it's going to certainly be a photo finish. Yeah, so what, what, if, what, what do you do if you end up with you know, three votes separate the two? You go to a recount. I mean, both candidates will be pacing. I, I mean, I think it looks numerically like this is down to two candidates. I don't think mathematically that's an absolute certainty. But Correct. But it's overwhelmingly likely this is down to two candidates where it was almost feeling like a three-way dead heat at, at one point. So – Nonetheless, um, we haven't been in this spot before, and the various quirks in this cycle have have added to the attention. And, and we hope that this is not a case where you have to get lawyers involved, and they're watching the recounts happen, <laughs> right, yeah. and people are challenging ballots, and it, it can turn into quite a show. Right. But um, we have a similar situation in Montgomery County. As of today, at-large council member Mark Elrich has a 149-vote lead over David Blair, Uh, The nominee will be determined again after provisional and absentee ballots are counted and all of the votes are certified. This is another process that could drag on for potentially a couple more weeks. I mean, again, you're talking about a few tenths of a percent separating first and second. Unbelievable. So, so as a as a practical matter, you know, a fraction of one percent. This this also looks like it could be headed for the automatic trigger of a recount and basically all this, all the same conversation. Who knows what the, what the Delta might turn out to be. Um, Nominally, it's a little bit bigger margin just in number of votes, but I think the number of votes outstanding there is a larger number too. So, so we're, you know, we're basically all the same conversation about Baltimore County more or less applies to the Montgomery County executive race as well. So um, it's just, you know, Hold on, hold on to the edges of your gown. This may be a bumpy ride. It may be a bumpy ride. And we do have an interesting twist in Montgomery County because longtime Democratic Council member Nancy Florine is weighing an independent run for Montgomery County executive after she has seen uh, potentially the results of this uh, Democratic primary. And she thinks that maybe she'd be well-suited and the, the residents of Montgomery County would be well-suited to have another option on the ballot here. And this is... The, the mechanics of this are tricky. So, um, I mean, in addition to the potential intrigue of there being more at stake and, and, and more that's in play, I guess would be the way to say it, right. in, in the general election, uh, there, there is a Republican nominee, uh, Robin Ficker right. uh, is the Republican nominee. He ran unopposed. And, and he, will, he, will, he will race a, he will contest a spirited campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know him as a political player for a number of years. He years ago served in the Maryland House of Delegates, but he's been involved in, in Montgomery County politics for quite some time. Uh, but the, the added dimension here now of, of Council Member Florine possibly entering the race is tantalizing enough. Um, just the, the nuts and bolts of where we go from here. Now, if I understand it, what she's filed is with the Board of Elections. It's a, a, a notice of intent right. to run as an independent candidate or unaffiliated candidate. Is that right? Correct. So she says that she will ultimately decide whether or not to run once the Democratic nominee is clear. 
but she did have to file a declaration of intent uh, yesterday, Monday, without knowing the outcome of the primary because of the state's filing deadline. So again, we have all of these provisional ballots outstanding. This is another weird situation where if she would have known the results last week, right after the election, uh, she could have decided, I know who the nominee is going to be and I'm going to run or I'm not going to run. But now potentially she doesn't know who the nominee is, but she has to say, I'm going to run even though I don't know the outcome of this because I'm just not sure and it's too close to call. And it's a, it, so this is, this is odd. I mean you have to think that this deadline of six days after election day per se, that that, that deadline for the filing of independent candidates was, was probably created with the notion in mind that we would know what happened in the in, in in the primary itself. Exactly. So you have to think that that's why that deadline was set. It's right. like, okay, let the dust settle, you know, let cooler heads prevail. You got several days into the next week. You can think it out, you know, you know, take take some time to decide if you want to do something like this. So for people contemplating an independent run, right. you got a little window of time. In this circumstance, this is almost like we're still stuck on Tuesday night. Right. Um, and we may still be for some time ahead. So so she's got a curious situation, had to file this document that says, I reserve the right to run, effectively. Exactly. And so it doesn't commit her name to being on the ballot yet. It just says she's intending to do so. Okay. But at the same time, there's another state law that says she's unable to change her party affiliation until later this week. That window doesn't open up until July 9th. 9th. So that's... Um, so, so, so that's you know, another wrinkle quirky, here. Quirky, right? right. So, so right. now, so now that's nine days after, and whatever. <laughs> this is this is a, a peculiar circumstance, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And again, it, it's it's the, this race is so close. We have all these provisional ballots. We talked about that last time. Just another wrinkle here. Potentially, this issue with the provisional ballots uh, is having another more interesting impact on this race. But nonetheless, um, Nancy Florine is considering a run. This is also interesting because she now she's term limited and three of her uh, council members were also term limited. They ran, she didn't. Mm-hmm. And now potentially she will actually be running as an independent. Right. It's, I, I mean, politics makes for crazy circumstances as, as well as, you know, we've the old, the old saying of strange bedfellows. So, I mean, this is an odd circumstance, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I guess given the oddities of the election cycle overall and the quirkiness with election administration on the front end and these computer glitches, the super close races and the crazy surprises on Tuesday night, uh, that there is continuing drama potentially two weeks or more after the the contest of the election, I guess it just fits, right? We have to certify this election at some point, right. but between here and there, still drama, right? And, and, and for Nancy Florine, I mean, some of this has to do with the ability to develop in Montgomery County. Is that right? Is maybe that is why she is contemplating a run here? Yeah, I, I think I think that's one of the big undercurrent issues right. in this campaign is the nature of how Montgomery County develops. What sort of things do you green light and what sort of things do you place conditions on and that sort of thing. Uh, Montgomery County, as as we and a number of the county leaders and we, we had a visit to Montgomery County, uh, spent some time in downtown Rockville, but then got on a bus and head out into the agricultural reserve, which are vast expanses of area that 
I don't know, you, you get not that far from the city of Rockville and it started to feel like the Eastern shore. You wouldn't know you were in Montgomery County. Right, yeah. So, um, I mean, I mean, Montgomery County is complicated politically, but also geogra- geographically. Um, I think those issues are one of the undermining issues, you know, one of the undermining factors in, in this whole, in this whole, uh, you know, this campaign, a multi-way campaign within the democratic primary to establish at least a front runner for the general election. So too close to call for both of those races. We also have some other local races that are too close to call. We're waiting on provisional ballots, but I think it's fair to say across the state, we have a number of races that have not been called yet because we're waiting for more absentee ballots and provisional ballots. Just fascinating. And particularly when you consider again in Baltimore and Montgomery County, all of those votes and we're down to, you know, under a hundred in one case and just over a hundred in another. Absolutely incredible. All right, we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Michael, any big plans for the 4th of July, which is tomorrow? I I know a lot of folks are heading out of town. Route 50 is probably a mess right now, but... Anything going on tomorrow in the Sanderson household? Uh, we got the fireworks and so forth, so we're going to do a little bit of that and some grilling and all that sort of thing. So that that's pretty good. Hey, before we lose track of it, I will say on this election stuff, one way to address this business, hold your primary election on a Friday mm. instead of a Tuesday. That's what they do in Guam. We may need to do maybe maybe a mission there to sort out the things they're getting right. And we know that Guam gets <laughs> most everything right. You know we're big fans of Guam if you are a uh, loyal listener of the podcast here. So I'm all in for that. Maybe uh, we'll have to bring that up in the General Assembly this year. You on the 4th? Big stuff? Uh, you know, we saw fireworks last week, probably a little bit of grilling, maybe some fireworks. They're all around, so I'm sure we'll figure something out. But spending the day with family most likely and relaxing 4th of July is always nice. Good, good. All right. So folks, next week, we on our next episode, we're going to have a very special edition again that Michael and I are very excited about. Michael, we're going to talk about the impact of new technology driving new policy. We're talking about things here like solar. We're talking about drones. We're talking about small cells, Uber, mm-hmm. all of this new technology and public policy trying to catch up. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting bundle of things to talk about. And what we'd like to do is get into a rhythm here of um, maybe alternating episodes. We pick a t- particular topic and try and drill down a little bit, go a little bit deeper than the the week to week. You know, hey, what's in the what's in the headlines right. sort of thing. So. Um, maybe we'll we'll alternate for a while and see how that goes. The the catch up on issues of the day every other episode, and in between we'll seed in stuff that we think is is worth the the deeper dive and a closer look. Absolutely, that will be a very fun episode. Also, I have to mention our summer conference is upcoming August fifteenth through eighteenth in Ocean City. If you haven't registered, you'll want to do that. Trust me, content is looking awesome. The exhibit hall is great, so go ahead and do that. But until our next episode, this is Kevin and Michael signing off. We will talk to you soon. Mm